You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Our feature speaker today is Jordan Gans Moores, who is from uh, Northwestern University, assistant professor of political science. And uh, he's a specialist on corruption, rule of law, property rights, uh, topics I imagine he's going to talk about today. Um, he mainly focuses on Russia, but not just Russia in his work. Ukraine recently. Ukraine, so he's moved on. His book uh, is titled Property Rights in Post Soviet Russia. Violence, Corruption, and Demand for Law. He's also published extensively in uh, top political science journals, uh, AP, uh, American Journal of Political Science, American Political Science Review, uh, Comparative Political Studies, as well as area studies journals such as Post-Soviet Affairs, Problems of Post-Communism. Um, and today, his talk is entitled Property Rights in Post-Soviet Russia, Violence, Corruption, and the Demand for Law. So let's give him a warm welcome. Thanks for driving up for more questions. Thanks so much, everyone, for having me. Thanks to Ted and Jennifer, Yoi, Kathy. Um, it's fantastic to see people. Fantastic to be here. Um, so normally I have a, a certain introduction to this talk and to the book that um, I don't think I need to give here because I was just look, reading, reading uh, Kathy's new book about everyday law, and it starts off about how you have to always, when you write a book about law in Russia, say people's reaction is there's law in Russia. And Tim Fry's book on property rights in Russia has, has a very similar introduction. I think it's a conversation with his brother-in-law or something where it's a, there's property rights in Russia. And so I don't start my book that way, but I do usually start my talk that way because I usually have to start with some sort of introduction so that people take my title seriously. Um, and start by talking just about a little bit of the big trends so we can start opening up our minds a little about some of the changes that have occurred in Russia. So what this is showing is change over time in one of the federal districts of Russia in terms of murders related to doing business. We see a substantial decrease from about 230 in 1997 down to about 17 in 2005 per year. So that's a good sign. And at the same time, over time, we see a substantial increase in the number of cases uh, that firms have initiated in commercial courts in Russia over time. This is just the cases that firms themselves have initiated. From a low point here of around 200,000 in 1994 to over a million years, we get to the end of the first decade of the 2000s. And that's the general question that the book and today's talk are based on, is this question of when is it that firms use illegal strategies, and I'll talk more about what I mean by those, and when is it they switch to relying on formal legal institutions, um, and more broadly, from a social science perspective, when is it that private actors rely on formal institutions? And, but I'm looking at this really in the context of protecting property. And the easy and tempting answer, particularly in the case of Russia, is to say that this has to do with the effectiveness of formal institutions. That is, when law and legal institutions, or state institutions in, in general, are effective, that's what drives this shift. And certainly, there's some truth to that. Uh, Putin did come to power and make things work somewhat better. And that does play some role, but I'll show, among other things, evidence that from the perspective of firms, that shift really wasn't dramatic enough to account for the types of changes that we've seen happen. Instead, building on uh, particularly some of the work that, that Kathy did in the 1990s about demand for law, I'm really going to focus on the demand side, changes within and interactions among firms. And I'll talk about a couple examples from the book today, and these are not supposed to be kind of master explanatory variables, they're, they're illustrative of, of several different things that are talked about in the book. 
But I'm going to talk about one thing that changed the cost of the legal strategies for firms, specifically the change in ownership structure among privatized firms, and the way that changed long and short-term horizons and made it more costly and difficult to do a legal business. And also things that reduce demand-side barriers to using law. And by that, I mean things that are about the attitudes of firms or things that are actually in the structure of firms themselves. In the case I'll talk about here, it's going to be tax compliance. And the role that once firms start paying their taxes more, not perfectly, but more, that made it easier to use formal institutions. And the final piece I'll talk about is the way the interaction between firms matters. Um, and the sense of the way that as expectations about other, what other firms do shifted, it became less logical to use legal strategies and more logical to use legal strategies. The book seeks to make a number of contributions. The first two really build off work um, that Kathy and Katerina Pister and some other people have done, um, both in, in, in the first part in the sense of trying to draw attention beyond oligarchs and scandals and look more at the way that regular firms use law, uh, but also trying to switch the focus from ruler supply of institutions to firms' use in the sense, and I'll talk about this just in a moment, that the property rights literature and political science and institutional economics really is focused on this question of the decision of rulers and sovereigns and states. And that's important, but it's incomplete. And that's part of what this is going to focus on showing why. But to push beyond that, the two other things that I try to do is build on this earlier work and really trace and identify the determinants of institutional demand down to some of these specifics like ownership consolidation in firms and increased tax compliance and some others that I'll talk about. As well as to really integrate these various analyses that have, on the one hand, people like Vadim Volkov talking a lot about these legal strategies and mafias and so on, and then other people working on these questions of everyday law, put this all together into one unified framework and one book that really looks at this transformation from one side to the other over time and across different types of firms. So before I get to the meat of the talk, I just want to say a few words, because I understand this to be an interdisciplinary audience, about some of the institutional economics and political science uh, viewpoints of property rights that this really builds on. So there's a pretty strong consensus among social scientists and policymakers that property rights are important for economic growth and a whole bunch of other good things. But the question really is being, why is it some countries have them and others don't, and how do you get them? And a lot of the existing studies are focused really on the side of rulers. So just to give a couple quick examples, Mansur Olson's work on these ideas of roving bandits versus stationary bandits, or in straight terms, this idea that some rulers basically find it throughout history better just to steal everything you can from firms and extort everything and expropriate their property rights immediately because they know they're going to be out of power soon. And other rulers see it beneficial to them, since they're going to be in power for a long time, to create secure property rights and over time tax firms and make more money throughout times you know you're going to be there. So short-term versus long-term horizons dictate whether a ruler wants to expropriate immediately or create institutions. And there's other stories by people like Douglas North that add to this and, and bring in wrinkles about technology and so on and how easy or hard and expensive or not expensive it is to tax firms and so on. And so there's very stories about this question of whether or not rulers provide institutions. But there's not as many stories about this question of once the institutions are provided, how are firms going to react to that? And somewhat taken for granted, not entirely, but somewhat taken for granted, at least in a lot of the canonical literature on property rights, about how that firms like property rights. That's a good thing. Institutions are good. So they're going to be there. They're going to use them. But of course, when we, for I think most people in this room, it's not surprising when you know countries like Russia, there's a lot of other things they could do. They could entirely avoid them and turn to alternatives like mafia rackets and so on. Uh, they could subvert them and use corruption and so on to turn these institutions into basically weapons for their own use. Or they could go about using them the way that often, though not always, the institutional designers had in mind. 
And so what we get in many parts of the world is the divergence between the formal institutions and the actual ways that the rules of the game are working, the actual things that are happening on the ground. And what this book is about is trying to understand how those two come together. Once the formal institutions are put in place, how is it that the way that firms actually go about protecting their property diverge or come together with these formal rules of the game? So I'm going to spend the first part of the talk talking about the evolution of how firms protect their property in Russia. Then I'll talk about a couple of the explanations and wrap up with a discussion of the way that firms look at each other's expectations and what that can teach us about institutional demand and supply. The book builds on a number of different types of approaches and data, just to mention a couple of them. Uh, in 2009, I conducted 90 interviews with firms and lawyers and private security agencies. I followed up with about 20 of these in 2014. This was done primarily in Moscow, but also in the Siberian town of Barnaul. The following year, I did a survey of 300 enterprises. I can talk more about the sample. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's a mix of small to very large firms. It's a mix of service and industrial firms. And it's across eight different cities, uh, ranging from Moscow to Rostov on the Don in the south, to St. Petersburg in the north, and out to Novosibirsk in the east. I'm certainly not claiming anything about this being representative of Russia, but this is eight of 10 of the largest cities, about 20 million people in population. And it's enough to at least make the claim that the trends I'm talking about are not limited to Moscow and St. Petersburg, that this is broader than that and something that, while I'm not going to make the claim is uniform by any means across the country, is significant, not just in the capital cities. So three big trends that the book traces in terms of the way that firms go about protecting their property. The first is the decline of private legal strategies. And by private legal strategies, probably was familiar to many people um, through the popular book by Vadim Volkov and others, and for most people who spent time in Russia or been around Russian studies, it's certainly a, a gripping story, um, are these criminals and private security firms that substitute for the state in the early 1990s. Um, very prominently in the sense of not just being in the legal sectors, but by some accounts, at least among small businesses, when we talk about surveys by people like Timothy Fry or Vadim Rodayev, 50, 40, 50% in the mid-1990s of firms and small business are running into protection rackets in the course of doing business in order to protect their firms. Um, so they're basically in the role of police, in some cases they're playing the role of arbitration instead of courts and so on. And in the meantime, private security agencies with ex-KGB guys and such are playing a role that's similar. But this has declined dramatically and declined much earlier than in popular lore is often seen to happen. Um, probably by the mid-1990s at least it's declining, but we already saw the big decline from the late 1990s to the mid-2000s in one district in terms of murders, one federal district of Russia in terms of murders. We see something in survey data as well. So Vadim Rodaev, for example, when he's asking in 1998, uh, 1996, excuse me, uh, what percentage of firms have, uh, business people have ran into direct threats or actual coercion in the course of doing business, about 40% are saying, yes, I've encountered that. By the time I do my survey in 2010, we're talking about less than 5% having encountered something like that. We see something similar in the survey data about criminal rackets. When Tim Fry does this research in the mid-1990s, as I said, there's about 40% of small firms are seeing this. 8% of firms in the 2010 sample that I have ran into criminal rackets in the last six months. Only 4%, uh, uh, 8% of small businesses and only 4% of the overall sample. But we don't have to rely just on survey data. When you go and talk to the experts, they say something very similar. So this is an interview with the head of a private security agency who had specialized in fighting these types of criminal rackets in the 1990s, and he's almost kind of missing them. So he says to me, by 1995, criminal groups were becoming something simply exotic. The client came to us and said, some thugs tried to extort them. Well, this was for us something exciting. It gave us sort of nostalgia for the old days. And again, that's mid-1990s that he's saying this change was already occurring. So by the time we go through and get to the late 1990s, things are already changing even more, so all the 2000s. 
And private security also evolves dramatically throughout this period. So by the time you talk to people in the late 2000s, when you talk about private security, there's lots of people in the sector, but it sounds a lot like what you would hear about when you talk about private security in the United States. That is, people who are paid a little bit of money to stand outside and guard a door, or people who are paid more money to guard a VIP as they're transported somewhere or something. But they're not playing this direct role so much in the in, in that they're playing earlier on, according to some accounts, in terms of actually how property rights are protected and transactions are done. So where did firms turn as this was decre decreasing? Part of this was replaced by things that relied on formal institutions and relied on the state, but were not done in a legal way. So a straightforward example of this would just be you go to court, but you also bribe. Of course, this happens all over the world in many different places, and that was certainly playing a role. But the more intriguing parts were the stories related to the way that various law enforcement and government officials began to do something similar to what the mafia rackets had done earlier on, but using state resources. And this was something that wasn't a secret to people who were in Moscow at the time. When WikiLeaks released a bunch of information from the US State Department, there were some great quotes that really spoke even in the terms of firm demand for different types of protection, or as they said, Moscow business owners understand that it's best to get protection from the MPD, the Interior Ministry, and the FSB, the successors of KGB, rather than organized crime groups. So they have not only more guns, resources, and power than criminal groups, they're also protected by the law. For this reason, protection from criminal gangs is no longer so high in demand. Or to make this a little more concrete and detailed, just to give one example from a respondent that I talked to, he explained the way this would work for him in the early to mid-2000s when he was extorted by uh, some clients. He, this was a guy who would sell high-end accessories for cars, like discs, you know, that spin. Um, and this was when the first people would bring these into Russia, and this was, you know, really cool, and people would come and buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear from him. And so he was talking with high-end people. Some people tried to extort him because they were saying that uh, the disc had cracked, the car crashed, their cousin had died, they wanted $500,000. So he called up one of these new security firms with ties to the FSB, and they let him come along to see how this was done. And they arranged a, a meeting at a parking lot. And they parked across the street just to show him how this would work. And a big van of police officers basically showed up in the SWAT masks, you know, the SWAT team masks and the machine guns. They just opened the back of the truck and just showed them the, the extorters who was there with the masks and the guns and basically a SWAT team. Within 30 seconds, they called the businessman. You'll never see us again. We see who's protecting you. And that was that. And so it was a very effective way to deal with these types of problems. And it's using state resources. It's abusing them, to be sure, because that's not probably the purpose of these SWAT teams. Uh, and, but it is the police doing something that they're supposed to do in terms of protecting people from extortion, just only doing it if you pay the private money on the side. And certainly, even in the late 2000s, there was still use of this type of thing to a significant degree. Uh, one thing I tried to do in the survey was distinguish between various types of use when firms talked about how they protect themselves in terms of going to court or talking to uh, public officials. So when I asked about if you've had a security crisis and you went to talk to bureaucrats or law enforcement, did you do so in an official manner or did you do so in a private manner? And we talk about in a private use, 20% directly said, yes, we've recently turned to public officials uh, to, uh, in, in this case, uh, or law enforcement, 17% said that they turned to them in a private sense. Or courts, I asked about, have you turned to courts in an official sense, or have you turned to courts also using informal connections? And 14% said also using informal connections. So it's not a negligible amount. But even in the late 2000s, there's a lot of discussion about why these types of approaches are becoming harder to use and more expensive to use. So at the same time that these were continuing, but beginning to decline, there's also a significant rise in the use, of course, in the way that many people in the West would just consider, quote, unquote, normal to do. 
So we already saw the rising caseloads, but caseloads can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Uh, other evidence points to similar trends, however. In the survey, I asked firms, compared to 10 years ago, are you more or less willing to use courts to resolve a, a property rights dispute? 54% said more willing to litigate, only 6% said less willing. Two other things that are pointed out in work by, by Kathy and work by Peter Solomon and others who talk about this question of how do you know whether courts are functioning and being used and so on, that point to something uh, beyond just caseloads is that one of the things that's particularly uh, strong evidence of willingness to, to use courts is when you're willing to sue the state because all throughout the world it's not particularly a friendly thing to go and try to get somebody who's part of the state themselves, a judge, and prosecutors and so on to be potentially agreeing with a judge or other types of uh, public uh, officials to be agreeing with you when you're fighting a tax official or when you're fighting someone from the pension fund or so on. But we see from 2000 to 2008 dramatic increases throughout that entire period, particularly in these types of cases. And beyond courts, we see a dramatic increase in the number of lawyers in Russia. So a whole series of things point to this idea that lawyers are playing a bigger role and courts are playing a bigger role. And it's not just in Moscow, or as the head of uh, private political practice out in Barnaul in Siberia told me, people more or less have come to resolve disputes in a civilized way by going to court. The courts are so full that to move through the corridors of a courthouse is now impossible. And again, this is in a mid-sized town far, far, far from Moscow in 2009. One final piece of evidence that I think is interesting, at least anecdotally, is to compare the 2008-2009 crisis to the 1998 crisis in Russia, which was quite dramatic. And what we see is in this later crisis, there's this dramatic jump in the number of cases. And if you break down the data into cases that are really about what you'd expect in a crisis, non-payments and transactions between firms, that is what's driving this jump. 1998 was at least as bad, probably worse in many ways. Certainly firms had massive problems with debts and non-payments and all these issues, and yet there's no similar jump happening at that time whatsoever, which to me at least indicates that firms went somewhere else. And that, I think, is a pretty dramatic difference. So we have a series of things pointing to a rising increase in legal strategies, a declining increase in at least the private use of illegal strategies, and something in between for the illegal use of the state. One final piece of evidence that I want to talk about, because I'm going to come back to this in some analyses later, is I use several hypothetical vignettes. The data I'm going to use throughout the presentation today is a hypothetical vignette about a property dispute. I also do one about a debt dispute, and you get very similar results. The property dispute was along the idea of a legal corporate rating in Russia, but this idea that some other firm is trying to take some assets from you, a factory or an office, and asking firms, in this situation, on a one to seven scale, how likely are you to use different types of strategies to protect yourself? One meaning not at all likely, and seven meaning very likely. And when we look at these types of kind of mafia, private security agency type stuff, we see that it's very low. Again, one means very unlikely. When we look at this private use of public officials or informal connections uh, in court, we see uh, something in the middle. And when we look at the use of courts formally, or in law enforcement and bureaucrats and so on, um, or even more is out of court, we see it at the highest end. Now, of course, there could be issues associated with desirability answers in terms of here, although you know, there's not really strong reasons why somebody would be so proud to say they use lawyers out of court or something like that. So we have to take this with a grain of salt, but with all the other evidence that's combined here, it does fit a consistent story about the rising use of legal strategy and declining use of other things. Yeah? Sorry to interrupt. Uh, with private security agency, you have that under private illegal. What, what's the basis of determining that's an illegal action if the security agency operates yeah. legally and they're using defensive it's something I struggle with, and 
I think, to be honest, uh, by this point, most firms probably would interpret this in a fairly legal way. Um, so I think this points more to the fact that these just aren't that useful yeah. to firms anymore, other than for very basic things that wouldn't involve, be involved in this situation, um, than the fact that they really don't use them because they're illegal, to be honest. Um, it was something that, you know, quite honestly, I wanted to dig deeper into some of these things, but by the time I was doing this research in the late 2000s, it was, it was like, people just didn't want to have conversations about this because they were, they were like, this is so silly. It, it like made me look, when I would ask about this, if I asked about it like it was a prevalent thing, it made me look like I didn't know what I was talking about. So when I first started doing the research, I was like, well, tell me about Cretias and things like that. And they'd look at me and they'd just be like, Man, are you, is it 1995? Is it 1996? <laughs> like, this stuff hasn't happened in decades. Like, you know, they're like, and you know, and, and I do think, um, you know, this is something, you know, Kathy, you and I have conversations about this, is what do we know and not know, and how do we know it about the early 1990s? And, you know, my impression from the conversations, because I would push people and say, did you have these experiences in the 19, early 1990s? Say, yeah, I, you know, my car was blown up, and this happened, and so on. So I didn't get the sense that they weren't aware of what we were talking about or against talking about it. They were just kind of like, if you wanted to seem like you might be a foreigner who sort of knew what was going on, the point was to talk about this stuff, because that made you seem like at least you weren't, I mean, you maybe they were kind of like, yeah, that's not happening so much anymore, but at least you kind of know what you're talking about. So, so it's like sort of the middle stage that Volkov talks about between criminal racket and private security. Yeah, that's that's where I that's where I see it. So this was something I you know I put in, and I think I also have somewhere also uh, it's not on this graph, but uh, or on this chart, but also you know internal and security firms um, or security, internal security agencies. But th that really breaks down into the question of larger firms and smaller firms, and larger firms still did use them. Um, I think what I I break this out more in, in my article in, in uh, post-Soviet affairs where I said, okay, so that kind of goes against the story a little bit because it looks like they're used more, but when you ask them specifically what they're used for, it's very specifically like checking your employees um, and IT security um, and, and questions about what they use them for in terms of like property rights and stuff like that, really not at all. Um, so I think that's what's going on, but, but it's a very good question. Any other questions before I talk about possible explanations? Yeah, please. Yeah, you mentioned another is dropping down dramatically. How about suicide? I wouldn't doubt at all that there's some being registered as suicides. Um, I don't know if that affects, I'm not sure I follow how that affects the trends. Well, because if the numbers are actually higher. Yeah. Oh, so, so that those numbers are just entirely off is what you're or saying? Accidents. Yeah. Accident. You know, <laughs> all, I, all I can say, you know, so anytime I've given any talk on this, and I'm sure others in this room have experienced this as well, is, you know, people want to know, how, how do you know any of this data is reliable? And, and how do you know people are telling the truth and so on? I'll come back to some of those questions in Q&A if there's interest in that, but, because um, I have some stories about that that are sort of funny, but um, I take everything I have here with a grain of salt, but I think the general picture works in that from lots of different angles, you see general trends. And so, you know, am I willing to bet my life on a certain percentage and say, you know, only 5% of firms in this year had an encounter with a mafia racket? No, but am I sure that something dramatic changed from 1996 and 2010 based on survey data and interview data and caseload data and all these things together? Yeah, I'm very confident in that. Um, and in terms of things like the murder rate, in that one specific case that I'm talking about, that was gathered by a Russian sociologist who actually went case by case, as I understand from the article, reading the case files that she got access to, and she specifically checks, and she has a footnote that specifically checks about saying, these aren't just people who died, these are people who died in the course of doing business. 
Um, so in that case, I actually think that was pretty good data. I mean, I would have loved to see somebody, I would have loved to have done that myself at some point, but I never got access to something like that. Um, and obviously you see it's from one part of Russia, um, but I think it's a nice illustration of, of what I do think are broader trends. So, but it's a fair point. Any other questions? All right. So let's talk about the tempting answer. I mean, I think both generally the temptation in terms of thinking about why, and again, so I don't think it's just about property rights, it's just about firms. I think this is about, in general, why is it citizens and firms or anybody uses formal institutions versus not use formal institutions, which is a big issue in the developing world, post-communist world, whatever you want to call it, this part of the world, and so on. Um, but more broadly, uh, is, well, how effective are these institutions? In many places, they're not effective. And certainly when we talk about Putin, it's easy to, or Russia, it's easy to attribute just about everything to Putin's rise. And it plays a role, to be sure. In, in, the, in, the, in the book, I trace, really through a full chapter, the various levels of state legal capacity and how they evolved over time. And I'm not going to spend time on that here, but the most important to me is just this question of, from a firm's perspective, did things improve enough to account for the trends that we're talking about? This is data from the World Bank, EBRD, Business uh, Enterprise and Environment Enterprise Performance Surveys uh, in critical years in 1999 to 2005, tracing the percent of firms that agree with things like the court system in Russia is fair and impartial, quick, honest and uncorrupt, affordable, and able to enforce decisions. And with this one exception, able to enforce decisions, which so we'll talk more about in a moment, uh, you really don't see an improvement. You see either declines or basic things leveled out or very modest improvements, but not something that really seems dramatic compared to the types of changes we're seeing in how firms do business. This is pretty dramatic, and this certainly plays a role. Uh, so the question is whether enforcement of decisions increasing really seems to be enough to drive the changes we're talking about. In the book, I cite both interviews that Kathy did and, and uh, surveys that Andrew Yakov the High School of Economics did about this question, both in terms of interviews with firms saying, yeah, this is a problem, but it doesn't stop us in the 1990s. It's not what's stopping us from going to court. Or surveys by Andre, which are saying things like, if you had to go to court but did not, why? And in surveys like that in, 19, in, in 2000, uh, only about 12% of firms are saying, because I couldn't enforce my decision. And giving lots of other reasons, but not that one. So do I think this plays a role? I do, but I don't think this is something that's sufficient in order to say this is what motivated firms to switch dramatically. Is it possible that more broadly, there's just this law and order brought to Russia, and that's what we're seeing. It's not just about state legal capacity, but more broad law and order. And certainly that's a, a, a popular image, but a lot of the basic data, things like murder rates and so on in the early 2000s, don't really support this. They weren't particularly improving under Putin, at least at first. And when you look at the people who really dig deep into these questions of Putin's legal institutions, people like Brian Taylor, who I think has done a very good book on this question of the, of the state secret uh, security and power ministries and so on, they come to a pretty similar conclusion. So as Brian writes, the achievements of Putin's state building project were modest and partial. The greatest gains in capacity taking place in rebuilding a regime of repression. Much less progress made in coping with core routine tasks, repressing opposition figures and bad oligarchs certainly came much more naturally to Russian law enforcement officials than establishing a stable private property rights regime. But beyond that, I'd say it's not just that they weren't effective. The part that's really puzzling to me is during this period when firms are beginning to go to courts even more and beginning to use law enforcement more and, and act in, in accordance with formal institutions more, it's the same time that officials are becoming more and more predatory. That is, firms are turning to the state when the state itself is becoming one of the biggest enemies to property rights. And this was something that came up over and over in the interviews. So to give just one example, small business in particular at this time in the 2000s 
were equating the predatory officials with the mafia bandits of the 1990s, and also often calling them worse. So this guy says, the banditi who were here 15 years ago wore signs that said bandit. It's easy to distinguish between banditi and non-banditi. Today, in Moscow alone, there were 50 organizations that have the direct right to inspect and block the work of an enterprise. And this was not the only guy I saw seeing this distinction of people saying, I'd rather deal with those guys from the 1990s than these thugs who called themselves state officials. And the final piece that I think plays a role in terms of being insufficient, I think is part of the story, and then I'll flesh this out a little bit more about how the demand institution, uh, the supply and demand of institutions interact with each other towards the end of the talk, but the other piece why I think the supply part is insufficient is that it can't fully explain cross-firm variation. So in the book, I devote a chapter to these questions of different types of firms being more or less likely to, to go to court over time and things like that. And if you have this supply side explanation, you expect a much more uniform switch. But instead, we see certain types of firms be more or less likely, which is much more in line with this idea that something on the demand side within firms or between firms plays a critical role. So I want to give two examples from the book. Again, I don't mean to emphasize that these are the things that by themselves change Russia, but these are examples of these two ways that demand side things matter, that when the cost of legal strategies rises, when barriers to using law falls, separate, again, from the barrier of just things being not effective or too expensive to use legal institutions, that we see changes. So let me talk about this first one in terms of the evolving ownership structures in Russia. I'm going to assume that many people here are familiar, uh, at least in broad terms, with the Russian privatization process. This massive transfer of 120,000 firms, 20,000 medium and large firms, and this massively troubling, uh, dis uh, 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 difficult situation. And one of the solutions was to use this voucher privatization approach that, again, if people have want to dig more deeply into, we can talk about, and it's very controversial. But the key part for the story here is just that it led to very fractured ownership. So because people were handed these vouchers that we exchanged for shares in firms, by the mid-1990s, we end up with firms that have all different types of shareholders. Here's just an example from, um, <clears throat> from one survey broken between the state, foreigners, individuals, legal entities, workers, managers. This is really a name only because managers mostly were able to coerce their workers to do whatever they wanted. But the key part was that you had no, very, no dominant owners in these industrial firms. So while that dispersed ownership might work fairly well in a place with the effective minority protections for minority shareholders in a place like the United States and so on, what you end up with in Russia is a situation where there wasn't owners who could stop their managers from investing a lot, and there also wasn't owners who were willing to invest and think about the long term because they knew if they did invest, it was just going to be stolen either by managers or blocked and stolen and fought over by these other competing owners. And so for things to begin to switch and think about things in the long term and think about things in a way that wasn't about simply grabbing as much as you can, using whatever strategies you could and so on, something had to change. And that changed very dramatically. This is something that was, you know, I wish I could claim credit for, but this is something that was written a lot about in the business press in the late 90s and early 2000s in Russia, was this consolidation of ownership and the way that it changed the calculus of owners. And so we see, over time, a switch from firms that were privatized having a large shareholder only, uh, with at least 50% from only about 10% rising to a supermajority of firms by the mid-2000s. So how did that matter for firm strategy? Well, there's at least two ways to just schematically sketch this out, and I go into more detail in some of the chapters. One way has to do with this time horizon shifting. So as you begin to get somebody in charge of the firm, they begin to think, now that I actually can invest, I'm going to think longer term, and I'm going to think about raising the productivity of this firm. But to do that, I actually need to think about things like not just whether this is going to hurt me and whether I'm going to be attacked by others because I'm constantly using all sorts of legal sketchy strategies to protect myself and to steal things from other people, but also what the reputation of this firm is. 
And I mean, you think about the broader business environment in general. The things that we're doing may be good for grabbing as much as we can, but they're not good for keeping things stable, and I need that for this long-term investment. And so you begin to see the idea that using these strategies that involve certainly mafia, but even things that involve corruption and bribery and illegal raids by the state and so on, really raises your risk from legal strategies. And in both the APS article, the American Public Science Review article, and in the book, I, I sketch out a lot of the, the, the quotes behind some of this evidence, both that I gathered and that researchers in Russia, Russia have gathered. And another piece is just that as this accumulation occurred, people had a lot more to lose. So you'd be talking to people and they say, in the 1990s, I didn't really care if I got shot. I mean, nobody had anything. But by the time I got to the 2000s, you know, we thought pretty differently. Or this bankruptcy lawyer said, you can risk in business, but not in life, a quote I really like, in the sense of him saying, you know, I'll lose my business, but I don't want to be killed anymore. Um, I mean, not that anybody wanted to be killed, but, but this really, I think, differently about risk now, which again, changes the calculus in, in two, you know, not perfectly, but in a way that makes it so you're less likely to want to use some of the strategies that are more on the sketchy side. Again, the qualitative evidence is things that are written about in, in the book and some articles, um, but one piece of evidence that I brought to this was from the survey, and ideally we'd be able to track firms over time and really be able to say, over time, how are things changing in your firm and how are you protecting your property rights? And we don't have that type of data, unfortunately. Uh, so the best what I can show is, you know, at a given moment in time, what would be consistent with that story? And what would be consistent would be that in privatized firms, we would at least see that those firms that have a consolidated ownership are less likely to use illegal strategies. And I did ask that in the survey. Um, only about 78 firms were privatized. This deals with the privatized firms. And I'm going to show uh, some results. I can talk about the technical part in Q&A in terms of actually how the aggressions were working with interaction terms for those who care about it. My understanding uh, for this interdisciplinary audience is just to talk about the the, the way to interpret what I'm going to show here, I'm going to go back to the hypothetical scenario about how likely you are to use different scenario, uh, different types of strategies, and look at the difference in terms of likeness to use these different strategies if you have consolidated ownership in your privatized firm or if you don't have consolidated ownership. And so the way to think about this is we're going to have a difference for the consolidated owners versus the non-consolidated owners, um, and meaning that the consolidated owners are more likely to use a strategy if they're on this side of zero and less likely if they're on this side of zero. Here we're going to have the legal strategies using violence, the legal strategies using corruption, and the legal strategies. And so what we'd be seeing in a situation like this would be that consolidated owners are about a full point less likely on that one to seven scale to use law enforcement in an unofficial sense. And that's what we see pretty broadly, especially across these various strategies using corruption and some of these other strategies. Um, for those who are comfortable with the regression context, these are just regression coefficients holding constant everything you'd want to think about in terms of the firm, the, the respondents, and so on. Um, so we get something consistent with the story that we'd be expecting, broadly showing that firms that have consolidated ownership do seem less likely to use these illegal strategies. So that's a flavor of one of the types of explanations of the way that things can shift in terms of the cost of using illegal strategies. To give a second example, the other way that things can shift is not just by making it harder to use the legal strategy, but making it easier to use the law. And one of the big things that was a problem in the 1990s was the fact that firms weren't paying taxes for a number of reasons. And I'll talk about why that's a problem in just a second, but just to give you a sense of how this evolves. It's certainly not perfect, but for a number of reasons, some of it related to tax reform, others related to the growth that starts in 1999, others related to just the motivation of firms themselves to take advantage of new investment opportunities which require them coming out of the shadows. Tax uh, compliance improves a lot. So this is, again, the World Bank EPRD, 
uh, Business Environment and Enterprise Performance Survey over three years, and is asking the question of, does a firm like yours report its, how many of, much of its sales revenue does it report to the tax authorities for tax purposes? And so this green line is saying, what percent say, yes, a firm like mine would report 100%, the black one is saying, what would report 90%, and the blue one is saying, what would report 70%. And we see significant increases throughout this period. It's not perfect, but it's pretty dramatic. 42% willing to report 90% or more in uh, 1999, going up to 65% in 2005. So certainly I'm not making the claim that firms in Russia all started paying their taxes, but they started paying a lot more of them, and many more firms started paying some taxes. So how did that matter? Well, people like Peter Solomon uh, and, and others were writing in the early 1990s about the way that not paying your taxes really makes it harder to go to courts. So as Peter writes, the realities of the tax system and the ways that many firms chose to cope with it, operating partly in the great economy with two sets of financial records, has added to the fact of discouraging those firms from using the courts to resolve disputes. And Katarina Pister and others have delved into this deeper about the ways that you know, prosecutors kind of would drift over into looking into firms when they see sketchy things, when you give a bunch of documents, when you go to court, or at least that's how firms would think about it. And so for whatever reason, whether it was true or not, it was something that firms were very afraid of. And I was still hearing about this being an issue in 2009, or as one litigator told me in Moscow, in terms of which businesses face problems with bureaucrats and criminal groups, the most vulnerable are those using black hash, joining uh, the meaning not paying taxes. They can't turn to the courts or police for help, and everyone knows that. That is, they make themselves vulnerable because people specifically realize that they're not gonna go and go to the law enforcement, given that they make all these types of violations themselves. And similarly, when you ask firms, okay, so we see this transition occurring, what is motivating this? One of the stories that would come up regularly was people say, because firms are paying their taxes. Or as this head of a legal firm in Moscow told me, there are more commercial disputes between legal entities. That is, companies have switched while are switching to a legal tax regime system. Accordingly, they turn to law firms, conclude civil contracts, and find protection for their contracts in the courts. Previously, everything was decided with a handshake. Now it's not like this. So we have the qualitative data making this link. And again, I use a similar strategy with the quantitative data, asking firms the same question that was asked in the World Bank Beep survey, approximately what percentage of annual sales does a firm like yours report for tax purposes? And what I'm gonna compare here are the ones we're calling tax violators, meaning those who say uh, less than 90% to those who say more than 90%. But the results are pretty robust whether you break this down in a 75% breakdown or whether you use an ordinal variable. But for simplicity, we're just gonna compare those who pay more than uh, 90% versus, or less than 90% or more than 90%. And particularly, I want to pay attention to these here, in the sense of does it become, uh, does it seem like it's really uh, more likely, if you're a violator, to use these illegal strategies? And indeed, that seems to be the case, that those firms that are not paying their taxes do appear to be more likely to use the legal strategies. So again, we see this correlation in terms of one of these barriers to using legal, uh, legal strategies, making firms more likely to use the legal strategies. In the book, and I'm happy to um, talk about these in q and I'm not gonna spend time on them, a couple other things just to give a flavor of the, of the things that get addressed that I look into are this idea that firms began to switch away from using cash to using the banking system, which dramatically changed the way that legal strategies can be done and made them cost more. And also the integration works with firms in the international economy. That's another thing that really changed firms' calculus in terms of how you do these types of transactions. So the final thing I want to talk about before I wrap up is these various ideas about the interaction between firms. So Kathy's early work on demand for law talks about these questions of 
a law mattering most when others expect it to matter. That's what law does. If no one thinks it matters, then it doesn't really serve as its focal point. And that can really serve as a barrier to using law in and of itself. And I came across this in lots of different ways. Uh, some of this was just the fact that once firms get stuck into using a certain mode of doing business, they like to keep using it. Or this is a quote I really like that came across in the Moscow Times. There was an anti-corruption uh, campaign going on at the time. And a business person was complaining to the reporters about this campaign saying, you know, I spent so much time to establish my contacts, I don't want to lose them. So, you know, anti-corruption sounds like a good thing, but I finally found a way to use it, now they want to take it away from me. But it's also more about the expectations, or this idea that, yeah, it would be good to switch, but only if we do it together, because otherwise, to put it really bluntly, I don't want to be the first guy who shows up with my lawyer and everyone else shows up with guns and knives and bugs or something. And that's exactly the way this owner of a Siberian brickmaking factory out in Barnaul said to me is, you know, I would be ready to switch, but even now, like here in Barnaul, I still believe the other guy would have an advantage. Uh, he'd get ahead more quicker, quickly. And the final thing is there's this sort of tit-for-tat thing that comes up a lot among businesses in the sense of some of this stuff is just kind of emotional. And so if you attack, they attack back. If you go to court, they'll go to court back. And that's a quote like this says exactly this. If we don't send guys in with guns because we don't want guys with guns coming to see us. So you have all these ways that you can get stuck in this bad cycle. Um, and certainly, expectations used to be bad. Even though we seem to have shifted, when I asked firms 10 years ago, do you think the majority of people with whom you did business did their best follow the law? Only about 30% said yes. We've also seen that things have shifted. And the evidence shows that there's been a shift in expectations as well. So when I asked firms, do you think that the people that you do business with now do their best follow the law? 66% said yes. So a significant change over time. And so I did a couple things here to try to build on these arguments about coordination effects and also to kind of flip them on their heads. So what do I mean by that? The earlier work was really about the different ways that you could get blocked from and get stuck in this bad coordination system where everybody, because of their expectations, doesn't want to switch. And so I asked this question again. Most people would invite a business to try to best solve a lot. And what I'm showing here is a comparison between what I'm calling pessimists which mean that people don't believe those other people follow the law versus those who do. And in terms of these illegal strategies, you do see this blocking effect. That is, those who are more likely, uh, those who do not believe others are willing to follow the law, are more likely to use illegal strategies. But the part where it flips, too, is that those who do believe firms are more likely to follow the law are more likely to use legal strategies. So if you can get some sort of prompt to switch you to make to be more willing to believe that others are using law, you get what I believe to see is, is this virtuous effect in terms of a cycle that kind of takes on a self-sustaining form. And this is something that in the APS article and parts of the book I, I formalize in some different ways. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but just to give a brief graphical description of the idea, it picks up on the various tipping point models that people like Thomas Schelling use to talk about desegregation, that David Layton has used to talk about uh, the use of language in different countries. And the basic idea is, is very straightforward and probably familiar to some people. But if we think about this just in terms of the value of using one strategy or another as a, as a function, how many firms are using a strategy, then the idea we've already talked about is that when everyone else is using illegal strategies, it's a good idea. And when everyone's using legal strategies, it's a bad idea. And so we see the opposite thing for legal strategies. And so what does this mean in a dynamic sense? If most firms are still not using the legal strategies, you start to use them, it's a bad idea. You go out of business or you get attacked, so you stop using them and you stop going back in this direction. That's the, the, the vicious cycle that was laid out in a lot of the literature early on. 
we could get a virtuous cycle if somehow we could get over to this side and firms would start to realize, okay, I'm better off doing this now. And so that gives us this tipping point area right here. And of course, this is far, far simplified compared to the real world. In the real world, probably multiple tipping points by different sectors and so on. But just to give a sense of this, what I believe happens when you have something like the consolidation occurring is that for all the firms, regardless of how many are already using legal strategies, it makes it more expensive to use the legal strategies. And that shifts the whole thing over in this way, shifts the whole, the whole benefit of using the strategies down and moves your tipping point over a bit and starts this process of a virtuous cycle. And that in itself is perhaps not anything particularly illuminating. The part that I do think is, is intriguing is that this gives us insights if we take it one step further into this question when demand really matters relative to supply. It's another area where I try to push some of this thinking a little bit forward is that in this situation we're stuck in intermediate state capacity. And this also speaks to I think the degree to which the argument is valid beyond just Russia and to other places. But places where there's enough state capacity that if other firms would use law, it'd be a good idea but not enough state capacity to go do it yourself when others aren't, we're gonna have this tipping point, and we kind of go either way. And it may be really hard to make state legal capacity grow, either for political reasons or technical reasons. But if something shifts on the demand side, it could have a very positive and powerful effect. On the other hand, if you're in a place of real low state capacity, one way to think about this is that the state's so ineffective, and law is so ineffective, that even if 100% of firms are using legal strategies, it's still not a good idea. And I think that kind of captures where Russia was early 1990s, where I certainly wouldn't make the argument that in the early 1990s, if only all the firms would have just started using law, it would have been enough to make it work when the court system had been established, you know, was just being transformed from the old Soviet model to the new, to the new system. We could talk about it and argue about it. I mean, my experience with Ukraine, I haven't studied this extensively in Ukraine, but my impression from Ukraine was it may still be stuck in something like this. But I think that's a more controversial statement, something that we could potentially talk about. On the other hand, if we're talking about something like the United States, am I going to argue that there's something on the demand side, a shift in firms that would make them all kind of tip away from using law? And I don't mean this in the sense of is there non-law, informal ways of using reputation and things like that. Of course, that all exists. But I mean, shifting towards really sketchy ways of doing business. Well, I don't. It's a strange time to have these conversations. But uh, <laughs> in the past, I would say no. And I don't think, at least in terms of the type of thing, of shifting back to something like Moscow in the 1990s. We're in a situation where in much of the, you know, the, many of the OECD countries, advanced industrialized countries, where legal strategies are still going to be more, a better choice, regardless of what other firms are doing. And so I think that gives a little bit of insight into when demand really matters is in these intermediate state capacity areas. And that's really where this argument applies to, uh, where we might have situations where these demand sides really matter. So to wrap up, a couple things that the books tried to do and the talks tried to do has really focused on this question of when is actors want to use institutions and really nail down, in the case of Russia, in detail, in empirical detail, how these things played out over time. Talk about how the institutional effectiveness matters, but it's insufficient. It's necessary in the sense of you need to get up at least to an intermediate state capacity level for demand to matter, but it's not sufficient to make things change. And to switch the focus, along with this earlier literature on demand for law, to looking at within firms and interactions with them. Again, I think it's an argument that even though I play it out only in Russia, does work in many other places with intermediate capacity states. Um, before I wrap up, I want to make a couple, just point out a couple caveats to be clear about what I'm saying. I'm certainly not claiming that the rule of law has developed in Russia, and I'm not going to right now even try to define the rule of law and go into some broader debate about this. I'll say that for Q&A if there's interest in it. That just clearly I've been misinterpreted about this before, and that's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that firms have, over time, 
stop using legal, or reduce your use of legal strategies and increase your use of legal strategies. And I do think that this is an important thing to have happen if you're ever gonna get to the rule of law no matter how you define it. So that's certainly a big step towards it, it shouldn't be underrated, but by no means am I talking about the idea that because firms have changed the way things happen, rule of law has occurred in Russia. In fact, if anything, we see that the fascinating part of this is firms have started going to the state even while predatory officials are doing a lot of things that violate the rule of law, again, under any definition you could imagine. Second to last thing is policy implications I think come out of this. Go back to this idea that if you're in this intermediate state capacity area, but you, you can't, either for technical reasons or political reasons, improve your courts anymore. I think one thing that's interesting to think about is the way that promoting law could occur from thinking on the side of the firms or thinking about the state, but more broadly. So improving the banking systems, so firms use less cash or improving the tax system, which is promoted in rule of law reforms a lot, but usually the idea that we need to promote the tax, uh, improve the taxes so we can collect revenue so we have something to pay judges with, which is certainly important. But here it's an entirely different mechanism at play, which is that the very fact of making it possible for firms to pay taxes has a big influence on firms' day-to-day -day practices. So those are a couple things that I think could be of use. The final word I'll, I'll say is what does this mean in terms of where we are today? And particularly because, as many of you know who do research on Russia, it's the worst thing is to write books about Russia because by the time they come out in an academic time frame, uh, especially if you present to people in Russia or in DC, everyone's going, I like it, it made sense 10 years ago, and now we're in like a whole different era and everything's different. So to what degree does any of this still work and where does it all stand? The way I saw things as I was wrapping up this book um, was that the 2011 uprisings in, 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 in Moscow really in some ways were this, not entirely, but part of this clash between what people in the business world desire in terms of one direction, in terms of reducing corruption and putting things in a more formal sense, and increasingly predatory state. And it could have gone various directions, but the predatory state certainly seems to be growing, not shrinking in many different ways. That said, when I was back in 2014 doing final research to see where these trends were going before I wrapped up the book, certainly there still were some positive things happening. There had just been um, very intriguing changes in terms of getting things like uh, the way taxes are done online. And so Moscow firms were telling me these stories about how incredible it was, how they would, you know, they, they were owed money because they had paid the wrong amount or asked for the wrong amount. They went online, clicked a couple of buttons, and they just got money put back into their accounts. And they were, and I was going, that's crazy even in America. But they were going, this is really crazy in Russia. You know, and there's no bribing, there's no anything. It's really functioning. And so there were some things that were headed in good directions. On the other hand, something a lot of people were talking about right at that time, and something I haven't, to be honest, really followed up on, and that I'd be curious if other people had insights on, was that at least the upper levels, the commercial court system was being subsumed into the general court system, was something that a lot of people were very concerned about, because even though I would not make the argument that institutional effectiveness would have driven this, you need to have at least a minimum level of institutional effectiveness, and certainly the commercial courts, for all their problems, were more effective than the other types of courts in Russia. Uh, and the other thing that was, problematic is that there is a sense, although the data on this seems very mishmash because there's been these journalistic accounts of the extent to which renationalization has been occurring. Some really exaggerated claims about how much the private sector economy is being subsumed by the state again. If that happens, of course, the whole story falls apart. If there's no private sector, there can't be private sector demand. So there are these threats to the story in the sense of if institutions become so ineffective or so predatory that we're back in the state with massively low capacity, I don't think demand matters anymore. If the private sector disappears, to a large extent, I don't think demand matters anymore. But at this point, I still think it's a situation where things can go either way. You really do have this clash between private sector demand on one side and predatory state on the other. So I'll wrap up with that. Thank you so much for your time, and I really look forward to your questions and comments.